Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach them in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could do no miracles there, except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we continue our journey of the Gospel of Mark. Each and every week we take a look at the things that were taking place uh, in this time uh, around Jerusalem and Galilee and looking at Jesus' life. And each week, Father, we ask you to open our eyes to understand who was this man who was claiming to be the Messiah, who was claiming to be able to forgive sin. God, we ask that each and every week you give us more and more insight, more and more wisdom into the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I began in the introduction, I asked you, or, even, or told you, that there was two instances where we see that Jesus was amazed. The first was uh, a, a positive type of amazement, where Jesus was amazed by the faith of the centurion. In this case, is the only other time that the Gospels record Jesus being amazed, or what we would call astounded, and it's over the very same thing. It's over this uh, the, the theme or the topic of faith, but in this situation, he's surprised by what we'd see, a lack of faith. And I don't know if you caught that. In verse 6, he says he was amazed at their lack of faith. And so we want to explore that further today. And as we, we take a look at uh, this passage, we want to take a look just at basically two things. I'm going to give you an outline this morning. The first thing we want to do is we want to take a look at what we could think of the, the scandal of Jesus. And you'll see why we use, I use that specific word. It's, it's not to raise eyebrows. It's literally in the text. We want to take a look at the scandal of Jesus. What was offensive about him? That's the first thing we want to do. What was so offensive about Jesus? We want to explore that. In this text, we're going to see uh, what I think is four specific reasons. The second thing we want to do is we want to examine this statement where Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. We want to take a look uh, at kind of uh, what are the results of unbelief. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith, at their unbelief. We want to unpack that. How does faith work? Because we, we see a very interesting connection. Where we're specifically told Jesus could only perform, a, a, what we, when you use the word miracle, is there any a small miracle? But Jesus performed only the healing of, of uh, several sick people. And so we want to, in the second part, really unpack that. So what does this mean? What is this relationship with faith? Why was Jesus so, in a sense, astounded by their lack of faith? 
And what is this, uh, this connection between a lack of faith and Jesus' inability to work? So we're going to explore that. All right, now, before we begin, I, I want to just kind of lay out two things from the book of Mark. So if you've been tracking with us, so each week as we come to God's word, we have, in a sense, a story that unfolds in front of us. But the reality is we've been unfolding a larger story in itself. I mean, Mark was a book written that, that could be read in one city. Uh, and, and it's telling us uh, a larger narrative about Jesus. So every week when we come, there's the, the specific story and what that is able to inform us. But there's also larger things that's happening in Mark. And I want to tell you two of those uh, that I, I want you to be aware of. If, you, if, if you're a little bit... Uh, further on in the faith, and if you have had the opportunity to read the Gospels, let me just kind of give you two things that are taking place that you might see also in the rest of the Scriptures. The first thing that we're going to see uh, in, in this kind of big picture of Mark was his rejection in his hometown. Uh, I don't know about you, when I, when I use the words homecoming, it almost always has a positive connotation. Uh, and in, in this story, it doesn't, which is really surprising. That Jesus is going to go home. Uh, and I, I don't know, it, we come from different cultures, but in America, sometimes when uh, you drive into these small little podunk towns, they'll have uh, these huge signs, and it says, the home of, and it will say somebody famous that came from them. Uh, for me, it was always, I was always looking for, you know, baseball players or sports stars. You know, it, it would be, you would have a sign out front, and especially for really small towns. When, you, when you're talking about like 200, 300, 400, there's, I mean, this town would be known by nothing else except for the favored son or daughter who went away and won an Olympic award or rose to prominence or became a famous author. For me, it was, I always looked at the sports. Uh, but the reality is most hometowns are so uh, proud of those who have gone away and done well and, and, and become known in the world around them. And we don't see that with Jesus. It's really surprising. And one of the things that Mark is doing here, uh, and we see this also in the other Gospels, is that this marks the point, so when we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that we see, after this visit, everything changes. And this, this uh, rejection that we're going to see in Jesus' hometown is symbolic of the fact that universally Jesus was to be rejected by his people. And it's often, it comes out, uh, we, we saw it uh, in Old Testament kind of shadows. But if, if you know Paul's writing or Peter, one of the things they say again and again is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is going to come from this incident here, rejection in his hometown. Uh, because we know that, that not everybody has, has accepted Jesus, right? We know that he's been in synagogues, uh, and we know that he has gone head-to-head -head with scribes, with Pharisees, and we know that there have been many who have rejected. We know uh, from our story about the, the, the gathering demoniac, right? He was, in a sense, rejected by a whole other area that wasn't Jewish. Uh, it was a Gentile region. But the Gospels want you to understand this really important theme. And you can really point to this story as the, the climax of Jesus' rejection. It's when he's rejected by his very own village. Uh, so that's number one. The second thing I want you to get from Mark uh, is 
If you read the Gospels, one of the things you'll see is that you, you will not find Jesus, uh, in, in at least the Gospel of Mark here, back in the synagogue. After this, if like a page turns, if, if you were, so we've already put, in a sense, chapters and verses uh, in the Bible that weren't originally there. But if you were to read the, the original letter of Mark, they wouldn't have been specific markings. But if, if they're, when you're reading a book and you see like chapter three, close and then turn a couple pages and it's like the next section. Uh, have you, when you, uh, you have books like that at home. Like you finish the first section of the book and it, it's moving to the next theme. This is one of those sections that closes the first part of the story of Jesus. His rejection in his hometown, it turns the page, and the very next thing we do is seeing Jesus is now no longer going to be in Capernaum. He's rejected in his hometown, and he's going to start sending out his disciples all over Galilee to witness uh, to, to himself. And he's not going to use the synagogues, which he's typically used, right? He waits, and he, uh, he, he has acted like a rabbi. All of a sudden, Jesus is going to go on mission, and he's taking his disciples with him. And it, it will be like this until Jesus' crucifixion. It's a very significant change in Jesus' ministry. Not only is, is the location, the geography going to change, but the way he's going to minister. Mostly, Jesus' disciples have been following him, and they've been witnessing the miracles, but they also witnessed the rejection. Jesus allows them to see, hey, it's, it's not just that you're going to be made a hero for following me. That they, they have a chance to follow Jesus through the miracles, through those who are praising him, and they also are going to see the rejection. So they have a broader picture. What would happen if they only saw the success and Jesus sends them out and they face rejection after rejection? They think, I'm doing something wrong. So Jesus lets him get to the height of his rejection and then he changes. He pivots. He says, okay, I'm not waiting on the synagogue to accept me. I've trained you. I'm sending you out. And you had the sending out of 12 and we had the 72. So you need to know, this is not all in text today, but I thought it was really important just to tell you this is the closing of one section. It's very clear from Mark. So you need to know. Page turn. And you also need to know that, that this rejection was uh, going to be drawn upon again and again by Paul, by Peter. They very clearly see the stone that is going to be rejected is going to become the cornerstone. All right. Now, I want to dive down, and our sermon really takes two parts. And by the way, uh, let me just give a thank you. Uh, if you noticed... Daniel has been running our, not only our songs, but also our sermon. The reason I mention that is uh, if Daniel and I are not on the same page today, uh, it's because Daniel is doing this for the very first time. He stepped in. We actually have no one from our media team. Every single person on our media team is gone this morning. Daniel has stepped in, uh, and he's run our songs, and he's running our, 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 uh, my sermon behind me. And the reason we might not be in sync is not because of Daniel. I change my sermon up to the point I leave. Uh, I'm constantly editing, which means Daniel's versions that he may have seen coming across. Uh, I didn't change the way I prepared. Uh, I always have new things from my mind. So if Daniel and I are on the same page, not the poor kid's fault. Uh, I, I literally I literally do not stop editing until I leave the door because new things come into my mind. Uh, yeah, welcome to the crazy mind of Sam Dyer. It is a... Uh, it is a, uh, a, a very, very interesting place. We're going to dive into two parts. The first thing that we want to see, let me just give you an idea. Go to the map here, Daniel, see what, if we could. All right. Just to give you an understanding, if your mind processes location. When we look at Galilee, Jesus is on the, the, the northern side. He has been ministering in, uh, 
Sometimes we'll say Capernaum. Sometimes we'll say Capernaum. But he's been ministering up there in this city. If you notice, Nazareth is not anywhere close, especially in these times where you walk. It's 25 miles walking distance. It's 40 kilometers. Uh, it, it could be done, but it's not necessarily an easy journey. And so Jesus is going to pull away from his ministry in Capernaum, and he's going to go to his hometown. And so uh, it's a little bit off the beaten path, and to kind of give you an understanding of what Nazareth looked like. And by the way, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his parents are eventually going to settle in Nazareth. This is why he's always called Jesus the Nazarene. He comes from this small little village of Nazareth. Go to the next slide there, Daniel. And this is Nazareth. They, they have done excavations, and here's what I, that they have concluded. First of all, Nazareth is just a tiny village on the side of a mountain. It's basically built into the rock. In Jesus' time, there could have probably been no more than 500 residents. So literally, everybody would have were pretty much known, because you're talking about the same families, but you, you work in the same trades. You have some that are uh, tending flocks. You have some, like Jesus, that are more craftsmen. Joseph was a craftsman. Jesus was a craftsman. Uh, it was a pretty tight community. And the reason I show you that is because for Jesus to be rejected, it would have, uh, this wasn't like he was coming from a town of 100,000. Jesus was rejected by people who he knew, who, who knew his family, and he knew them. He was not a mystery. Jesus was in this village probably until he was around 30-ish. And so that was, and Jesus would have, would have been, uh, had a trade from a relatively young teenage, uh, who had been uh, mentored by his, uh, his father, if Joseph was still alive, and who had been working in this town. So Jesus would have not been unknown to those in Nazareth. So, having laid out what Nazareth looks like, kind of uh, in the background there, and having kind of seeing geographically where it's at. Let's dive into the text. And I want to first focus just on verse 3. Because verse 3 says very specifically, they took offense at him. They were profoundly offended. Now, the reason uh, uh, I think I may have skipped this slide I don't know if you showed it behind me, Daniel. I originally titled the message, The Scandal, or Jesus' Scandalous Homecoming uh, and the Power of Unbelief. The reason for that word, scandalous, so what we see, it says they were offended by Jesus, really is this word, scandalizo. Go ahead and bring that up. The reason I point that, now you notice, it, where we get the word scandal from, is this Greek word right here, a scandal. What you see in the definition there, and this is where it makes that link with the cornerstone that has been rejected, is that in the New Testament, this idea, this word that they use for offense, it became figuratively used as a stumbling block to somebody, to cause someone to stumble uh, or to give them a, an offense. So this is the word, this this. Uh, scandalizo. The connotation is that you have done something to offend somebody so much. It's almost like a, 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 an anger. When you use the word like disdain. Uh, when you use the word like contempt. It, it's more than being offended, right? So you, can, you can offend someone and, and they might be hurt. 
But this is something significantly more. The word they're using here it was that they were so insulted by Jesus that they disdained him or they had contempt in their heart. Now that's very different. We want to get to that. And this idea of offense, this scandalizo, it pairs with it not only the offense, but re outright rejection. So it's, it's, have you ever, when somebody is so offended, like, I want nothing to do with them. You can, like, tell that this has hurt them so badly that they completely just reject the person. It's not like, hey, I, I made a mistake. I I'm asking your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And they say, yeah, that, that hurt. I want you to know it hurt. But they want relationship. This was, the offense was so heavy that it led to outright rejection. So I want to begin there, this idea of Jesus' offense, the idea that it was a scandal. So they were, the people were scandalized by Jesus. And I want to take a look. In part one, let's look at what were the reasons for this offense. Now, you might be thinking, and by the way, when I read this, let's read verses 1 again. It says, or in the beginning, it says, When he came, uh, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach them in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. That's, that's the first thing. The first thing, I, it's positive. They were amazed at his teaching. It said, and then they said, where did these men get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? That he's even doing miracles. So they see his power and they see his wisdom. Which would be strange that in literally one verse, next thing we see is they're greatly offended by him. Does anybody see that that doesn't seem to be congruent? They're listening to him. He speaks on the Sabbath. They're amazed at him, which, by the way, all the way back in the beginning of Mark, every time that Jesus has spoken, we have seen people are amazed at how he spoke with authority. And we have seen that they're amazed at his miracles. And we see the very same formula here. Jesus shows up in his hometown. It's now the Sabbath. They invite him, uh, so Jesus is uh, comes to the Sabbath, and he's invited to speak. He speaks, they're amazed at his words, they're amazed at his wisdom, they're amazed that he even does miracles, and then in verse 3 they took offense. Now, I want to fill in something that is not in Mark, but I think will help you solve this problem of why were they scandalized by Jesus. If they saw his wisdom, they saw uh, his words, if they saw his miracles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, 16-21. I have this up behind you as well. Because in Luke, we have what we call parallel account. So this is the same story of Jesus' homecoming in Nazareth. But Luke gives us something that Mark doesn't. Remember, Mark is very much concerned about action. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. He tells us uh, usually the stories in their, their simplest, barest form. Sometimes Matthew or Luke will add more uh, to the story. They'll give us a detail we didn't have. Let's read this, and I think we'll understand how they went from amazement, how they went from seeing his wisdom, and how they went from seeing his power to hear miracles, and then became so offended, so scandalized, that they wanted nothing to do with him and rejected him. Verse 16, so here's the same account. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, this is what not what Jesus chose. This was the scroll that was given to him. 
And this is how the, the synagogue would gather. They would gather together, and they would read a portion of the scripture. And typically, they would invite a rabbi to explain that scripture. Jesus has come home. He's recognized as a rabbi or a visiting teacher. They read from the scroll of Isaiah, and then Jesus has the opportunity to interpret it. So, it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the favor of the Lord. All that, they've read this before, they're looking for the Messiah, all this makes sense. Here's what happens next. And this is where the chaos comes in. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. For the first time, they understood Jesus wasn't just an amazing teacher, and he wasn't just a miracle worker. They probably would have maybe even accepted him as a prophet. But these words literally were deadly words because the Spirit of the Lord is on this anointed person to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to recover, uh, to proclaim recovery of the sight for the blind and set the prisoner free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, it's all being done right now in your midst through me. Do you see the events? Do you see how they went from, this is amazing teaching. This is a man who has wisdom. This is a man who's performed miracles to wanting to see him killed. Everything changed when Jesus handed that scroll back to the attendant. The attendant sat down, and Jesus added one more little sentence to the sermon. It says, today, this is fulfilled in your midst. So it's literally in Nazareth that Jesus basically announces very clearly that his agenda is to be the one that God has said to proclaim the year of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the captives will be set free. Now, you should more see, clearly see the offense now. Do you see it? When we look at Luke's version. And I want to go in, so the scandal really is Jesus' claim to be the one, to be the servant who the Lord is going to use to bring about his favor, the year of the Lord. I want to go through four things which I see in, in this passage that in a sense, scandalized this group of people, this crowd in his hometown. And then we're going to take a look at, once again, this idea of how his lack of faith connected with his inability. So four things, we're going to run through them quickly. We're going to go back to Mark. We're going to take a look. And the first thing I want to take a look at is the scandal of Jesus' education, credentials, or lack of qualification. So why is it that these people rejected him? On the face value, yes. Uh, we can see Jesus really made clear that he was the one that God was sending and proclaiming the year of favor was coming through him. But there's some basic things, and I think even things that we will recognize as we, we look around and why we have a hard time not only accepting Jesus, but others close to us. The first was the scandal of his education. Now, this is not as clear in the text, but let me just tell you. When Jesus 
went to the synagogue that day, and they invited him to come up and read, that was the place only a rabbi was invited to. Now, a rabbi had to have a certain education. They had to be a scholar of, uh, of the scriptures. It wasn't just anybody who was allowed to be a, a, a rabbi, uh, if, if you think about it. Uh, we would say, I mean, we might even take offense. Let's say we were uh, in a hospital, and we were, uh, we were, we're going in, we recognize that I have cancer, that, it, it, that uh, my situation is unbelievably grim, and that the person in front of me, I am trusting, that has the education to actually be able to diagnose, to be able to prescribe, to be able to uh, help heal me, or, or give me advice. Would you feel let down if the person in front of you said, well, actually, no, I didn't do any of those things. I don't have a degree from any of those significant places. I didn't go to school. Uh, but everything that I know, well, what if you said, but, but I mean, how, how bizarre would it be? Like, but I created the human body. And I have the ability to know and understand your body intimately in a way that no doctor ever could. He has to use machines. He has to guess. He has to diagnose. I know you inside and out. I can feel you. Would you not be a little bit leery of the fact that you're in the hands of somebody who has no qualified education? In the same way that, now, you might think, well, well, that's Jesus. Well, back then, they weren't really looking at it in those terms. What I could say is that they expected the rabbi who came and interpreted the law to have an education. And here's what they knew. Jesus had spent all of his formative years in their midst growing up, and he wasn't a rabbi. And he didn't go to the proper schools. So no matter how much he spoke and amazed, and no matter how much authority he had, and no matter how much he heard miracles, do you not believe the fact that they know that Jesus is not truly a rabbi, and he hasn't gone to the, the, the accepted schools, and he hasn't received the, the right training, is not a stumbling block to them. And so the first thing we see was that there was this scandal of Jesus' education. It was like the open secret. Yes, he's acting as a rabbi, and in fact, it's fine if he acts like a rabbi in, in uh, Capernaum. But for him to come and teach in our synagogue, it's offensive. The second thing I want you to see is the scandal of being blue-collar. In verse 3, you see this question. It says, where did these men get these things? What, uh, what does wisdom that he's been given, that even does miracles? And then here's the first question. Isn't this the carpenter? The scandal of basically being a blue-collar worker. And once again, just like the illustration of the doctor, would it be difficult for you? Maybe if the guy who is collecting your trash on a weekly basis, or the guy who was fixing your toilet, or the, the janitor who was mopping the floors in your school, also doubled and served as the one who says he's the Messiah who's come to save you. Would you not be scandalized by the fact that I know this guy, well, think about it, like, literally, in that crowd, there would have been somebody who's like, this guy made my kitchen table. This guy helped me build the wall around my house. One year ago, this guy made me a yoke for my oxen. 
And if you ask, hey, who makes a good table? I would tell you, this Jesus makes a good table. Go to him if you need a table. This Jesus makes a good uh, wooden yoke for oxen. If you need a yoke, go to Jesus. He made an amazing uh, yoke for me. This guy, Jesus, he, oh, by the way, uh, carpenter, it, we think of it only as a woodworker. The, the term is actually really general. We don't know what Jesus was. He could have been a carpenter. It's used for any craftsman. Jesus could have been a stonemason. We actually don't know. We do know, so he would have had a trade. So he could have worked with uh, anything with like building material. He could have worked with wood. He could have worked with stone. He, but basically, he was a blue-collar worker who had some kind of skill, and he employed that skill. It could have been with working with wood. It could have been making furniture. It could have been uh, in helping construct houses. Uh, it could have been many things. We don't know. But here's what we do know. People who sat and listened to Jesus, literally in that audience, would have known. So here's a guy who a year ago wasn't even a rabbi, who's now speaking in our synagogue. And after he read Isaiah, literally folded up the book and said, in your midst, this prophecy has been fulfilled. And this is the same guy who made my table? Now, it's... Not meant to be comical, but it is meant to be truthful. Would we not look at this and have some significant questions? The stumbling block of the fact that Jesus was a blue-collar worker who literally would have done work for these people in the synagogue that rejected him. The third thing I want to take a look at is this, this scandal of the illegitimate birth. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 3, one of the first things that they, they say and I think this is after Jesus has read Isaiah, as they said, first of all, isn't this the carpenter's son? The second thing they say is, isn't this Mary's son? I'll just bring a stop right there. You've probably read the Bible enough, and if you've read the Bible at all, you would recognize that no one is ever called the son of a female in the Scriptures. It's always the son of their father. It's always this way. And uh, people will say, and so even if Joseph was dead, you would say, well, we actually never hear about Joseph after uh, the, the miraculous uh, Jesus' birth. We don't really get much of Joseph after that. And so some scholars might say, well, it, it's for this reason. It's for this reason that he's called the son of Mary, because Joseph is no longer around. But it's really clear that this is a scandalous accusation, that Jesus basically is an illegitimate child of a father that we don't know. Because they say, isn't this just the son of Mary? They don't say the son of Joseph. They basically say, we don't know who your dad is. You're the son of Mary and somebody else. But it, it's not Joseph. Now, if you think I'm stretching the truth, go to John 8, 41, because we see the same exact accusation. This is a, this, you know, we talk about scandal. This is a scandalous accusation. This was about as low as you can go. When you, when you talk about, hey, man, that's uncalled for, that's out of bounds, this is about as, a, as low of a public humiliation or, or a, uh, as, as humiliating a, a, a language can be was to call Jesus out in the open in front of all these people, the son of Mary, basically saying he's an illegitimate child. John 8, 41 says this. So Jesus was talking with the Jewish leaders, and he says, you're doing the deeds of your father. Jesus is accusing them uh, of basically not being the sons of God, but being the sons of Satan. He says, you're doing the deeds of your father. 
And here's their response. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. You see the same exact accusation here in John? It's not about this situation. But when people really wanted to sling mud, like when you, when, when you really wanted to embarrass and try to humiliate Jesus, the lowest thing you could do, I mean, even today, talk about somebody's mother. Uh, I was just watching, uh, uh, literally, uh, there was two guys who uh, had a, a championship boxing match. And I just read the other day that they had met in a restaurant, and the guy who lost decked the other guy. I mean, took him out, had to go to the hospital. And I thought it was because he lost. And they interviewed him. He said, why did, why did you do that? And he said, because the things he said about my mother, he said, no one should ever utter to any other human being. That, and even today, it's like, okay, you call me something. Leave my mom out of it. Don't talk about my mom. Now, that's just kind of modern-day culture colloquial, but what you see in John 8.41 was very clear. When they wanted to sling mud, there was this nasty rumor that Jesus, he wasn't the son of Joseph, which is true. He had a miraculous birth. But they used that very miraculous birth against him. Because, which was easier? To basically deny Jesus' miraculous birth or to call him an illegitimate son of Mary? We know Mary's your mom. I don't know who your dad is. And so, the scandal of an illegitimate birth. And honestly, we, we all know, even when lies are not true, when they are spread like this, doesn't, give, doesn't it give you reason to doubt or pause? So now we have the guy, you know, look at the case he's building. The guy who's technically not a rabbi, standing in our midst. And they just asked him to interpret the book of Isaiah. And then he goes on and he says, by the way, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then on top of that, not only is this guy not a rabbi, he's the same guy who was just a year ago was doing work for me. And I, and I hired him to do some of the work around my, my house or, or some of the implements from my farm. On top of that, this is the same guy that we're not even sure that Joseph is his dad. I mean, his mom obviously was sleeping around. The last thing I want to take a look at is just the scandal of the familiar. The scandal of being known, ordinary, or familiar. We have a, 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 a phrase in English that says, familiarity breeds contempt. And it's used for a lot of other things. But the reality is, it's much easier to accept somebody, to accept an authority who you are not familiar with. So, for example, one of the things that uh, often happens in sports, when, when a player who has played with uh, his teammates and has been elevated to a coach, one of the things that often happens is it's very difficult to coach the guys that just a year ago you were also playing with. Uh, you don't have the same kind of authority as somebody from, who comes from the outside, even if you have the relationships. There is something inside the human heart that struggles when we're familiar. Uh, sometimes, for example... Our kids have a harder time respecting us at times than an outside authority. Why? There's a sense in that being the mom and dad to these kids who we live with every single day, day in, day out, is that it breeds a contempt for our authority. And Jesus gets at this. In verse 4, Jesus says, A prophet is without honor except in his own town. And notice he adds two things, among his own relatives and in his own home. After they said that isn't just, just the son of Mary, they continue on and they say, and the brother of James, and Joseph, some versions will say Joseph, it's the same name, 
and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters with us. So Jesus had at least four brothers, and we know at least two sisters, family of six. One of the things that you should be really well aware of, and you maybe have seen this when we, we were studying Mark earlier, is that Jesus' own family didn't believe. Remember, they, they uh, came around and they were they had come to the place where Jesus was, and they, they sent word, hey, we want to see him, and they said, you're out of your mind. Now, just in case you thought that was kind of a one-off incident, the reality is, John, uh, let's see, John 7 uh, tells us that even his brothers didn't believe. Uh, I won't read you the whole context, but the, the story goes like this. They're getting ready to have uh, the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. It's one, it's one of the few... Uh, one of the few festivals where people would travel to Jerusalem. And Jesus' own brothers come and say, hey, listen, why don't you go to the big festival? They said, listen, I mean, if you're a miracle worker, nobody does miracles in secret. Go prove yourself. This is basically, read John 7, 1 through 9. That's what they say. Uh, they, they say in verse 4, for no one does uh, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They're challenging Jesus. This is his own brothers. And then we have the comment. And Jesus says, my time has not come. He tells them to go without him. But we know, uh, it says, that his brothers did not even believe. In verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. And it looks like they're citing this. The people are saying, don't we know James? Don't we know your brother Joseph or Joseph? Don't we know Judas? They said, and the idea is, they don't even believe in you. They're, they're citing this kind of the stumbling block of the familiar. Jesus' own family doesn't believe in him, and apparently not even his own village believes in him. Now, I cite those four things, those specifically in the text. I don't want to stay any longer, but I'll just say this. There is any number of reasons that present the stumbling block for us today to believing in Jesus. Here's four from the text. And I don't know what it might be for you, but the reality is, just like Jesus' own hometown, you'll come face to face with Jesus. And what we see from human nature is there's a scandal to us about believing in Jesus, about stooping low to believe in Jesus. And literally that's what it is. Every single one of these is there is a, a difficulty in stooping low enough to believe in Jesus. He's not a real rabbi. Son of an illegitimate woman. Not even his own family believed. But here's the truth. If we are going to believe in Jesus, there's some type of scandal that you're going to have to work through, or a stumbling block. The scandal is literally, as once he comes, there's a stumbling block to work through. Now, what I want to move to part two is the amazing power of unbelief. And we'll work through this quickly. I want you to see in verses five and six the results. So if that was the scandal of Jesus. What was the results? The results are very clear. It says in verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. In verse 6 it says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Let's just reflect on this, uh, of Jesus' amazement at their lack of faith. Because it's, it's almost like, and by the way, here's what blows my mind. Has anybody ever doubted you? I can't speak for you. I have maybe a different personality. I'll tell you what. It makes me 
frustrated and angry and makes me want to prove myself. Now, you might not get angry, but doesn't it make, when somebody doubts you, don't you want to prove yourself? Jesus' response is not to prove himself. And the amazing thing for me is that he doesn't even get angry. He's just astonished. He's astonished at their unbelief. Now, yeah, um, have you seen, you know, like, uh, the, when you are, are uh, going on vacation and you have, like, seven wonders of the world, and now we have, like, UNESCO world treasures, uh, these things that are, are, like, amazing that you have to see, right? The seven wonders of the world. If there really was the one true wonder of the world, long before there was these, I think it really would be man's unbelief. Because you think about it. Let's put this, this together. The demons? No one recognized Jesus. Immediately. Nature actually recognizes God. Jesus speaks to the storm and says, be still. Nature recognizes God. The demons recognize God. The human heart? This is, this is astounding. The human heart has the ability to limit God's power in these, this passage. That's astounding. How about, uh, literally, when in my mind, it comes the seven wonders of the world and all the things, if there is one wonder of the world, angels bow down to God, and they're higher than us. Fallen angels recognize, and they're the enemies. And all creation literally responds to God and to his very voice immediately. And the human heart? can literally stand in front of Jesus and say, you're an illegitimate child of a woman and a man we have no idea who he even is. You're just a carpenter who a year ago was one of us. And Jesus' response to this isn't anger, isn't I'll prove it. He's simply amazed. In fact, I thought of this verse, Matthew 23, 37. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Here's Jesus' true response. You want to know Jesus' heart response to this? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, this is speaking in general. We know this is Nazareth. But Jesus says, Who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather you and your children as a hen gathers her chicks under your wing, my wings, or her wings, but you were not willing. The human heart is so hard that if you want to do like the hearing check, they actually heard words of wisdom and words of authority. If you want to do the eye check, they actually saw miracles. If you want to do the heart check, they refused to believe. Is that they found his claim to be the one who will come and save them offensive. And so they rejected him and his identity. They rejected him and his willingness to come and save. But they also found other reasons. They said, aren't you just a carpenter? Aren't you just the illegitimate child? Aren't you just the brother of these people who we know who even rejected you? Now, I don't want to leave this before we just take a look at could versus would. Because this is interesting. So what we see is, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And I think we should be amazed too. Because we shouldn't be amazed at their unbelief. We should be amazed at our unbelief. Because we, just like the people of Nazareth, have these issues that make us stumble over who Jesus is and his identity. Would versus could. When you say could, now notice what this text says. It says, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people. 
I don't want to get into an English lesson, but could versus would. Could means do you have the ability to? Right? We, we talked a little a few weeks ago about Jesus' power, the extent of his, his power. So when we say can or could, it's, at, it's, it's talking about, like, do you have the ability to do this? Would is getting to, like, desire or, or a willingness to. Will you or could you? Do you see the difference? There is a huge difference. What does this passage say? It says he could not do any miracles there. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Because how can God, who is all-powerful, be limited? So we know that Jesus suddenly didn't lose his power. This is a fact. Jesus suddenly didn't lose his power. We know that Jesus didn't stop being God. So we know that he still had the power. And literally, so if, if something changed, he would not be God. So what was this limitation? And this is the other amazing part of this passage. The limitation is the faith of those in front of him. That God has chosen to limit himself by our faith. It's not that he lacks the power. When it says Jesus could not do, was it a fact of ability? Well, it's not a fact of God's sovereign authority. He didn't stop being God. It's a fact that God has sovereignly chosen to use faith as the means of working with us, with the human heart. To kind of Maybe illustrate that if I were to give a summary, a, a case study. Mark 9, 22 to 23. Let me just give a case study. And then we'll close. I want you to see could versus would. Mark 9, 22. So we're, we're fast forwarding Mark. And it says this. So these are parents of a child who has, uh, is demon possessed. And it says, uh, and they're coming in with Jesus and they're pleading and they're telling him what's happening. He says, he has often cast himself or thrown himself into fire and into water. To, uh, to destroy him. So this is saying the demon is doing this to the child. And they say, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, if you can? Literally in the text, Jesus said, if you can? Then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. So what is the limitation? Is it that Jesus can't do it? He doesn't have the power? No. It's the fact that Jesus chooses to work through faith to bring about healing in your own life. So God has, has in a sense, stooped to use faith as a means to allow you to interact with him. So, is it a matter of can? It's not a matter of can or could. It's a fact that God sovereignly chooses to limit what he can do in our lives to our willingness to trust him. So, that's why the, the sermon is called Jesus Scandalous Homecoming. It was scandalous. Scandalous. And I want you to see also the power of unbelief. How powerful is unbelief? It's powerful enough to allow you, and let me just go straight to the application, two applications here. It's powerful enough to rob you of, of the joy of seeing God's power in your life in the present. Notice I said what was amazing is that my... my Reaction would be to prove it. If you doubt me, you, you doubt who I am, I would prove it. Notice that Jesus doesn't see the need to just perform miracles. Like, Jesus isn't a magician. He doesn't just throw out miracles that do nothing. He saw their hearts were hardened, and he most importantly saw they had no desire to believe. And Jesus allowed their disbelief to limit his ability to heal. 
And as a result, it says only a few minor miracles. So why were there a few? It's because Jesus hasn't been dictated. He didn't say, because all of these people said no, I'm not going to do anything. Here's what I get. The people who believed and came up to him and said, Jesus, I believe. Would you heal? I, I think he healed. In fact, the scriptures prove that's true. Is that Jesus healed those who came to him. But the overwhelming majority rejected. And what did Jesus do? He didn't prove it to them. He didn't say, you want to reject me? Let me call, literally, let me call lightning down from heaven. Let me call fire down from heaven. Do you think Sodom and Gomorrah was bad? Wait till they talk about Nazareth and the synagogue who rejected me. Literally, Jesus could have done that. His response was astonishment that they don't believe. Not anger, not vindictiveness, not a chance. You doubt me, I will show you. Not all of that's missing from Jesus. What does he say? He humbles himself to limit himself, to limit what he can do to our belief. So, application number one, how does it work in your life? You can forfeit right now the power of God in your life by your unbelief. How powerful is unbelief? It's powerful enough to rob you of the joy of walking with Jesus and seeing him work in your life. He won't. If you think Jesus is going to sit there and argue with you to do good works in your life, he won't. He allows you to trust in him. Now, if you think, I don't know about that, Sam. Well, here's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews tells us very specifically that without faith, it's impossible to please God. How do we please God? Exercising faith. How do we displease God? When we refuse to believe what's in front of us. Right? What was in front of him? The authority, the teaching, the good works of Jesus. Now, the second thing I want to do is just... I uh, invite you to see, not only do you have the ability to reject Jesus now, to see his power, you have the ability to reject Jesus and remain under his wrath for all eternity. John 3, 35 and 36 says this, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What's the power of unbelief? You will rob yourself of every good thing that God would do in your life, but you refuse to come to him. And secondly, you will place yourself under the eternal wrath of a loving God who wants you to come to him, but will not force you, just like he did not force those in the story of those in Nazareth who rejected. 